0: Any sufficiently advanced
1: technology is indistinguishable from magic. Welcome, everybody, to the latest edition of the Into the Impossible podcast. Today is a special episode for me because I get to interview one of my heroes in astronomy on the eve of his birthday. It's not actually his birthday, but uh, I dressed up nonetheless. I was going to have a party hat, but I decided against that because I'm already having a bad enough hair day as it is. Uh, today's guest is uh, none other than Dr. David Spurgel, who uh, I've known for many, many years. His legends are numerous, plentiful, and well-deserved. I describe him whenever I'm given the honor of introducing him at a talk or a, a speech of any kind. I always say he's astronomy's Chuck Yeager. Because, uh, as you guys know, I'm a pilot, and whenever I'm putting around in my little tiny Cessna, I will get um, the chance to talk to air traffic control. And every pilot, no matter the tiniest plane whatsoever... Will channel Chuck Yeager. We're gonna go take off and runway six three and take down and go southbound and take the airway. And then you just channel it with that with that drawl. And then air traffic control, you may not know this day. They have to treat you like you're Chuck Yeager, even if you're doing, you know, a whopping 75 knots. So 63, no, 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 it's good to see you today. You know, you're clear too, class proper airspace. And I just feel when I'm doing that, I'm Chuck Yeager, and I feel that like Chuck Yeager, every astronomer wants to be you in one way or another. You are such a uh, a legend in this field. I want to thank you. I want to wish you a happy early 60th birthday. I cannot believe it. Thank you. You have done. You and I have managed to conserve weight during COVID. Uh, you have uh, gotten uh, more fit. I have dropped five pounds also, but from my double chin to my stomach. Uh, I want to congratulate you on that. And first, maybe that'll take us into our first topic. Do you have any daily rituals, any habits, any practices that you engage in with regularity or is every day kind of a, 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 a new cause?
2: Um, no, I have some regular habits. I exercise every morning. Uh, when it's winter, I go to the gym and lift weights and then work out on the treadmill. And when the weather gets warmer here, uh, I bicycle along the river. Ah, okay. Usually up to the tip of Manhattan and back.
1: And where is here, for my audience that might not be familiar, where are you calling us from?
2: I'm in Manhattan, which enables me to bike to the tip of Manhattan and back, otherwise (laughs) it would be a long trip.
1: Right. If you were at Princeton still, it would be a little bit longer. But I'm sure you could do it, uh, nevertheless. Um, And what about academic habits or intellectual habits? Do you have any daily practices, anything you read on a daily basis, writing, journal, anything like that?
2: I try to keep my days clear in the morning. I'm a a morning person. So, you know, I'm up at six, I exercise, I have a light breakfast, I come in and then try to prepare for my day in various ways. So a lot of times my day is meeting with graduate students and postdocs later in the day. Uh, A habit I've tried to get into is have them send me papers in advance uh, you know they're working on something like the current draft, the current slides. Um, so I try to spend time, typically from eight to ten, um, reading, um, hmm. reading what they've sent me, um, reading the sometimes the scientific literature. I'll look at the archive if I have time and see what's there, um, and then the rest of my then, day then starts to fill up. Um, I try to avoid dealing with emails that are uh just things you have to answer uh uh in in the, as, as the first thing I'd like to use that time for thinking mm-hmm. and uh then I'd say what I try to do with my day is if I have fifteen minutes between meetings, that's when I check my email <laughs> and uh, try to answer it right I mean I think it's you know. We're in this interrupt world of email and Slack. And if you want to think deeply about things, you need to set aside blocks of time to think.
1: Mm. Yeah. and You all. Almost- to think
2: superficially about things you need to set about blocks of time.
1: Yeah, I've lately discovered the value of having blank spots on my calendar, but they tend to fill up when you, especially when you have young kids, um, but, uh, but even more, especially when you have uh, responsibilities for, for hundreds of people, as you do, um, I should say that currently you're at the Flatiron Institute, the Center for Computational Astrophysics, which, uh, as David mentioned, is in uh, Manhattan. Uh, before that, you were a, pr- uh, a Princeton University professor for many years. You did step down. You're now emeritus professor. You've won many awards, including the 2018 Breakthrough Prize. You won the Hahnemann Prize. and And you honored me by uh, providing an encomium for my book, Losing the Nobel Prize, uh, which uh, may, may indeed hurt your chances at one point. But you called this book the work of my life. You said, it's not often that you get to actually touch space junk. It's far removed from your experience but Keating's book provides an ample opportunity for tangible, no, you didn't say that. You said uh, very glowing things, I'm very honored that you did it. You should know I was a little nervous to, to provide you with the advanced copy, because as I say, I look up to you so much, and I was nervous that you, know, you would think uh, it was a bad idea <clears throat> to write this book. You didn't exactly say it was the best idea for this book, but you did tell me some things about prizes, and and I thought maybe we'd start there. You don't strike me as someone who's ever been motivated to win prizes, and I've had nine Nobel Prize winners on the podcast, and not a one of them has ever said something like, "Oh, I was really driven to win the Nobel Prize." So, you know, most of them are not like me, as venal and inconsequential as I am. But can you talk a little bit about prizes? You win them, they don't drive you. How do you strike a balance between the motivational aspects of fame or attention? Versus just like putting your head down and doing the work.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was motivated to get a job and I was certainly motivated to get tenure and paid attention to that. I, I wouldn't claim to be not, you know, pure, purely motivated by uh, the drive to understand the universe. You know, you want get to a, get a job and be able to eat and feed your family. Um, but my primary motivation is it's fun to learn stuff. And I I enjoy that. I mean, I think that's one of my, my motivations as a mentor. It's fun to watch people grow and develop, I, you know. Uh, so I, I think that's always been uh, something driving me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was right before this uh, talk, uh, call, I was talking with uh, some students and postdocs applying machine learning to understand turbulence. And... It is exciting to see new results and to be able to contribute in some way to it. Um, Now I find myself on prize committees. (laughs) And uh, then you have to ask yourself, what role does a prize play? Mm. And like, do you want to um, reward the person? Do you want to hold the person up as an example for younger people as this is a model you want to follow? Um, You know, I. I think, uh, for example, I'm a proponent of giving prizes to experimentalists who put really good limits on important numbers. We tend not to do that. Right. But I think that's a, we have to send a message to people that careful precision measurement is important. Mm-hmm. Right? I think, you know, there are people who get very upset about the idea of giving a prize to someone working on string theory because it's not yet a proven theory. But regardless of whether string theory turns out to be uh, an important step in the fundamental theory of gravity, it's already taught us a lot about the underlying structure of gravitational physics. And, you know, so I think we need to recognize um, parts of physics or any other field that contribute to advance. So that, that to me is valuable. Um, I think in some ways of the prizes that I've gotten, the one that was the most valuable to me was the MacArthur because I got that early. And it gave me the resources to not worry about a bunch of things. Mm. I mean, the story I like to tell is when I got my MacArthur, there was an article about it in the Trenton Times. And I said in the interview, they asked me, how will this change my life? And I said, I was going to spend the weekend cleaning the gutters of the house. But now that I have this money, I'm going to hire someone to clean the gutters or physics. (laughs) And um, I then got an email from someone who said, I clean gutters. Uh, Give me a call if you want someone to clean your gutters. So I did. And, you know, Bought for me time, which is the most valuable thing, and also I took most of that money and set it aside for my kids' college tuitions, and removed that source of stress. And uh, so you know, I think uh, money early that can enable you to do things you wouldn't otherwise do um, is valuable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm I'm now moving to my new job across the street soon, where I'm gonna become president of the Simons Foundation. And the foundation doesn't give out prizes. There's no Simons prize. We made a decision to do that, Jim made a decision to do that, because we thought it was more valuable to uh, take the money to fund people's research. And one of the many things I've been thinking about with this transition is what are the things we can do that will be most effective at enabling transformational work. You know, how do we fund people? When when in their careers do we fund them and so on?
1: Right, typically prizes that I talk about in the in my book, <clears throat> you know the Nobel Prize average age has gone up every decade by, you know, faster than the rate of inflation, and now it's, uh, you know, recently uh, last year we had an 89 year old Sir Roger Penrose, your friend and mine, uh, was one of the winners. Before that, we had people in their 80s, et cetera, and so it has gone up steadily, and it's it's almost like. By the time they receive it, they almost don't need it. And sometimes they don't make it out alive, uh, as, as has happened. Uh, so people don't don't end up winning it. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I agree kind of the the unsung uh, way that that people can work without necessarily being motivated for it. And I see a contradistinction between that. I don't know if you want to talk about this necessarily. If you don't, we can always edit it out. But oftentimes on Twitter, I see things. People like, us. for example, you mentioned string theory. One of the um, one of the self-declared, you know, parents of string theory, Michio Kaku, who I'm hoping to have on the show in a couple of weeks. His new book is coming out. It's called The God Equation. And The God Equation, he keeps saying, "We'll do what Einstein didn't do." So there's an authority, um, and we'll win you a Nobel Prize. It will provide you a theory of everything that you can write in an equation one inch long. Now, I know you're a master of LaTeX. You could write in zero-point font better than anybody. So the, the length of the equation is irrelevant. But the conflation of Einstein and God and the Nobel Prize, I kind of find that they are held up as sort of synonymous to one another. And to, I always wondered, what is your perspective on, on the science as the prize? Of course, it's you do it, as you say – um, without or expectation of reward there thereof, but um, but the science as the prize, or maybe perhaps the authority that comes with setting the uh, the taste or the or the preferences of a field as string theory has, as someone like Kaku is talking about doing. Can you say something about that? The conflation of 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 God of 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 these figures of authority of the Nobel Prize along with physics. I mean, at first glance, they might not have so, so much to do with each other.
2: Um. Well, you know, one of the things about getting credit or not, the things, it depends what you want to accomplish. Um, you can, it's often been said, right, you can accomplish a lot if you don't care so much about getting credit for it.
1: Yeah, Lombardi said that, right?
2: Right. I've I think it's i heard that quote uh, associated with many different people. Mm-hmm. I think Ben Franklin said it. Oh, right. Really? Uh-huh. Uh, at least I've heard it credited to Franklin. Um, And i think that's real that's also true in science right there are things that uh you know you want to accomplish that you can do and without getting credit and then on the other hand if you you do get the opportunity to do other things and if you uh have done made a significant contribution and it gets recognized. It gives you opportunities to do new things in the future. To me, that's the biggest benefit, mm-hmm. um, you know, the. Nobel Prize. Um, so the best use of the Nobel Prize to me is someone like Steve Chu. Who won the prize for really you know, superb work, he did then used the authority of the prize to speak on areas like global warming, and to speak with, um, but while speaking with authority, he also recognized the weight of what he had to do. So he, there are people who use the prize to be, treat themselves like authority and talk about areas where they don't know much.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Right? The halo bias, and,
0: right, the halo effect. Right.
2: And, you know, um, but Chu became expert on energy policy mm-hmm. and uh, used that to, to do good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Brian Schmidt, uh, one of our colleagues who won the Nobel Prize for his work on supernova, has become an important advocate for science uh, in Australia people like Brian Schmidt, who've used the prize effectively, with one of my concerns with Roger Penrose. Roger has certainly done great work in the 70s and 80s, but he's written some really poor quality papers in the last 20 years. And he's used his authority to have press conferences to make claims that were poorly vetted and incorrect. Mm. And the danger of about, uh, you know, and this gets to do you want to, when you think about a prize, Think about someone's one singular contribution or think about recognizing your career and realizing that in giving particularly a high-profile prize like the Nobel Prize, you're elevating someone to be a spokesperson for physics. Right. Um, and you've talked you've, – you've
1: certainly been on a lot of teams and um, you've led teams You've also been, you know, kind of member at large of teams. Now you're going to be leading the Simons Foundation as a president incoming in, uh, is it July? I think July 1st. Um, So, you know, congratulations on that. Well, richly deserved. I'm going to talk about leadership and teams. Um, I often find, and, you know, I haven't been on as many teams and projects uh, as you but uh, but nevertheless, I always find that we kind of stumble into leadership roles and I've, I've had conversations with folks like Barry Barish on the podcast about leadership and people will say, oh, it's too hard. You know, like I'm not going to learn leadership. I'm not going to learn communication or public speaking. That's hard. And I always say, well, you know, quantum field theory is pretty darn hard, too. And I don't think you were born knowing that, uh, although although Shelley Glashow basically hinted that he almost was born knowing that. Uh, he's the only one that's been on the show, and I'll ask you this question later, too, about the imposter syndrome. He's the only person who answered in the in the negative that he never experienced the imposter syndrome. Actually, Frank Wilczek also. Uh, but nevertheless, um, uh, I'll ask you that at, towards the end. But um, talk about leadership and how um, we don't prioritize learning about it and and yet it's one of our most important duties as a scientist as a, as a mentor and a, and even on teams those of us who are on teams so uh, what would you say to, to those that say it's too hard to learn you know the, the rules of leadership or how to lead?
2: I think it's a skill that can be learned like everything else there's some people who have innate ability to communicate well. Um, who are naturally born leaders, but like naturally born athletes, um, you do a lot better if you train. Hmm. And I think I would view leadership like playing a sport. Um, you get better by practice. You get better by reading about it. You get better by working with a coach. So right now, you know, I'm making this transition to becoming president of the foundation. I'm working with an executive coach. Mm-hmm. Um, When I became department chair, when I started to play leadership roles in projects, uh, I read books on leadership. Um, I found particularly useful books written by people uh, in the technology industry, because I think that's closest to what we do when we're leading teams. We're we're not managing uh, factories. (laughs) We're managing groups of people who are making intellectual contributions to the project so learning uh well there's a lot of things I think you need to learn as a leader. You need to learn to communicate clearly, have a clear message about what you expect of people. You want to build a team of people that um where you you bring in the brightest people uh you have to recognize that the brighter the people you are, you want a people brighter than you on your team and
1: it's <laughs> um, easy easy for some of us
2: and um, you then want to make sure that they feel comfortable speaking their mind. And you want to make sure that people, you know, you want to develop the right culture. I mean, this is something I was very conscious of when we built the Center for Computational Astrophysics, was thinking about what is the intellectual culture you want to maintain. You want to establish, uh, you want people to treat each other with respect, um, you know, but you also feel they can't speak out, right? So you want to balance that. Uh, and um, yeah, so I, I think uh, leadership and mentorship are th- things where we need to be trained. I think one of the failings of the academic system is we make a transition from postdoc to junior faculty, and the universities don't set time aside to say to you, all right, you now need to learn pedagogy. You yeah. need to learn mentorship. And uh, there, there are some basic lessons I and mean, everyone develops their own style, but there's we can certainly learn a lot from others and we don't train junior faculty on making that transition. You know, Later in my career, when I went from a faculty member to department chair we had one three-hour meeting uh, with all the new incoming chairs, where we learned some, got some basic training. Mm-hmm. Three hours was good. Um, you know, I was discussing this with one of my colleagues who is thinking about becoming a dean, and we discussed that. You know, if I was a dean at a university, I would want to make sure that all of my incoming chairs. Um, Worked with a coach, had some training on uh, how do you run a department? Um, how do you work with your with your faculty? How do you work with your staff? How do you work with your students? You know, how do you run a large organization? Uh, yeah. I think we've all seen departments that have suffered when people who are very good scientists um, and are smart people. So, you know, uh, we can't... Uh, all be great athletes, but, you know, pretty much all of us, if we're not disabled in some way, can uh, run a mile, right, you know, speak for yourself, yourself. well, I think, you know, you want to lose that (laughs) COVID-20, I wish
1: it was 20. God, you're, you're giving me a head start I don't deserve. Uh, but you're absolutely right. I, I talked to a Navy submarine commander. This guy had a $1.5 billion nuclear submarine called the USS Santa Fe. His name is David Marquet. Uh, he's been on the show. And he wrote uh, – his first book is called Turn the Ship Around where he took the sub from worst to first in the Navy mm-hmm. uh, and different metrics. And I think that was the key in that book, having metrics because if you go into it as a scientist, you think, oh, scientists are naturally driven by metrics. But then – it's really like sociology as you're saying it's a whole, no one says there's no one set of skills scientist like <laughs> or professor and and uh, as there is for a baseball player i mean there you know there might be some subtlety and some might be more students of the game but, but basically you're either pitching you're hitting you're fielding there's a, a limited more limited set of skills but we have to deal with knowledge and wisdom and in his second book uh, he told me the most uh, his second book is called leadership is language and in that book, he said the worst word that you can say as a leader is "right." Like we're going to launch the space shuttle today, even though the weather's uh, cold, right? Or, or like, do you have any problems with making that landing? You know, Chuck Yeager, right? Um, and and so I think it goes both ways. It can also be that the the person in the in the right seat in the plane or or the student goes along with things that they don't really have the um, they don't really have enough knowledge to know that they should or should not trust their leadership. And going back to my experience, say, bicep, uh, there were many, many times along the way when, you know, I could have stepped in. I could have said, no, halt the presses, you know, and and I had concerns, as you know, and we have talked about that. Um, and they were driven by papers that you wrote with Ichiro and, and other people before, long before the event itself. But um, but I never stopped it. And I never I never said, we shouldn't land there, Captain, you know, or we should turn the ship around, you know, and, and so – I, I think it's hard because as a as a student scientist, you don't really feel like you have the ability to speak up to this professor. I mean, after all, you know, he or she is the chair yeah. at Princeton or UC San Diego or wherever. Um, so – how do you balance that? How do you balance the, like the need for a student to, to have to be a little bit of their own, uh, shepherds of their career, but also they have to trust their, their advisor, their mentor. It's a very perilous dynamic. Also one that's never taught. Nobody teaches you how to be a grad student, a postdoc, just like they don't really teach us how to be a professor. So what would you say to, to a student who's feels like something's a little bit off, but they don't have enough kind of uh, historical legacy of knowledge to know
2: this isn't right. Well, I think the first thing to do is ask questions. If you don't understand why we're doing, why the experiment's doing it this way, you're doing a theoretical paper, you don't understand why we're... uh, I think one of the most important phrases for all of us to learn is, I don't understand. We should never be embarrassed to say, I don't understand. Hmm. You know, or I'm a bit confused here can you explain why we're doing this? Mm. And, you know, it probably is true nine times out of 10, when someone explains why they're doing it, they're doing it for a good reason. Um, And if you're part of a paper and you want to understand, and you're reading as a co-author, and you don't understand why we're doing this, if you don't, uh, you know, I like to tell people, if you don't understand it, a lot of other people don't understand it.
1: (laughs) The reader's not gonna,
2: right. You should make Um, it as easy as possible. So, I think for a student, you want to be asking questions, right? You know, why are we making this assumption and so on? And every now and then you ask that question, and it's like, I don't know why we're doing this. Why don't we make this assumption? Um, You know, and uh, this tends to be, I feel at this point, uh, you know, how I contribute to science in my discussions. Right. It's like, you know, someone um, this is why I mentioned early on when you talked about my daily habits. how I like to have students sometimes send me in advance a write up of what they've done. And I like to as I look at it, I ask, like, why are you making these assumptions? Mm -hmm. And for me, that's uh, I think often the way I can contribute most to the project is is asking questions and trying to understand what, you know, Understanding for myself forces me to um, to ask questions. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and, you know, I people like to say there's, you know, no such thing as a dumb question. And that really is mostly true. I mean, there's questions you ask because you're simply not paying attention or you haven't done the you know, uh, you haven't done the homework. Right. You missed the previous four lectures that explain what that is. Right. That those questions you might want to at least look over the notes. But most of the time, if you don't understand something, um, you want to ask those questions. And I think uh, a piece of leadership is encouraging that, encouraging people to ask questions and um, creating environments where they can do that. Uh, There's some tricks I've learned um, to get people to ask questions and speak more, right? Just go around the room. You know, you make sure that Rather than just having the loudest voice heard, uh, you try to hear from all voices. Especially underrepresented voices. I find that a lot with my students who
1: come from traditionally underrepresented backgrounds in in physics, um, African-American students or uh, female in, in science. And even in leadership positions, David, there are people that you and I know very well and sometimes I'll be in a meeting, I'm like, you're so much wiser and smarter than me, but you're not speaking up. Let me let me just be a boorish, you know, stupid mansplainer and just ask, what do you think, you know, to to, to hmm. one of these, one of our colleagues? And I'll be surprised. I'm just like, God, if you didn't answer, like, I'll hurt myself, patting myself on the back, but only for asking them, please tell me what you think. Because I think it can really be dangerous not to, not to do what you just said, go around the room.
2: Yeah, no, you want to hear everyone's voice and... Um, I think when you're the only woman in the room, you're the only African American, you know, and even if you're just, you know, yeah, we all have had moments. Maybe not Frank Wilczek, I guess, <laughs> uh, where you mentioned where we feel inadequate, we feel we don't know enough, uh, and we feel awkward asking questions. Um, you know, I'm. I'm finding myself uh, again in this situation, which is, I think, refreshing and growing, right? Because now that I'm becoming president of a foundation that works on things like autism, what do I know about autism? (laughs) What do I know about neuroscience? Um, Everyone else in the room knows more than me. Mm. And, you know, I know I'm inadequate in this, but on the other hand, I need to learn and I'll only learn by asking questions Mm. and I would say nine out of my 10 questions um, are questions you know, of someone who's ignorant and learning. They're not dumb, they're ignorant questions, had mm-hmm. I studied the field. But every now and then you come into an area and you ask a question, and it turns out to actually be an interesting question. Hmm. Because you think about things differently from other people. Right.
1: And I think that you know, having that taste, developing that taste, it takes some confidence, and confidence is built on you know some level of past success. But, but certainly, you know, failure. You know, I did a Google ngram search once, and it was like, what if you if you hear the following words? It was the best thing that ever happened to me. And you ask Google what two words are the most commonly used before those words? It was the best thing that ever happened to me. It turns out it's I failed, or. I got fired, you know, in my, in my case, I had both, you know, experiences in my life. Um, and it was the best experience. Like I wouldn't be talking to you. I wouldn't, I don't know what I'd be doing without failure. So ironically, we think of our successes as, you know, as, as building this, this great capability and capacity, but it's more often than not our failures. And it's just amazing that, you know, someone who presumably hasn't failed all that much, uh, has done so much and succeeded so much. So maybe, you know, it's as pilots say, you have to learn from the, from the failures of others
2: because you won't live long enough to make them all yourself. I do think, actually, some of my most important work came out of, in a sense, failures. Hmm, right? So I, I spent about four years working on the idea that topological defects, cosmic strings, textures, sort of defects produced at phase transitions, mm-hmm. could be the source of large-scale structure. And we wrote a bunch of papers on this and I understood it well enough to understand the predictions of the model. Um, I would argue in retrospect, that's actually a success, exploring a model and realizing its predictions is is a good thing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when the new data came in from COBE, which is the first measurements, the microwave background, as you know well, um, our model was dead. I knew it was ruled out. And, you know, I did not respond to that result with joy. You know, when you've worked on something for four years and the the data rules it out, that's not a happy moment. No. Um, On the other hand, um, it made me rethink where things were going. Um, It actually made me appreciate how quickly the microwave background was going to get interesting. Mm. So I then decided to start thinking about what the microwave background can tell us about the basic properties of the universe, its geometry, its composition, and so on. Mm. And that eventually led to a series of papers that provided the science case for w right? So I would say the failures of those four years going in the wrong direction, in a sense, led to the successes that followed in the subsequent years. Right. Yeah,
1: and, and in fact, I had on John Mather last month on the podcast, and. He was talking, you know he's much more a matter of fact, I think um, but the experience of the Challenger disaster, setting back Kobe, and just like introducing complete uncertainty uh, as we scientists like to say, you know if you don't write down the uncertainty associated with some answer that you get, you can't uh, you can't really say you understand it uh, in in full breath uh, <laughs> completely. I want to talk about a quote that I often think about with regard to you in in, in regards to, to pedagogy, etc which is um, attributed to uh, somebody – I believe it was the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the, the rabbi of the Chabad movement back uh, in the early part of the – mid part of the 1900s. Uh, uh, and he said, um, he said a good leader creates many followers, but a great leader creates many leaders. And mm-hmm. I wonder if we can talk about um, the, the leadership you know, philosophy. You're very famous and well-known for saying the main thing students need is love – What
2: do you mean by that? They need a sense of self confidence. They need a sense of support. Um, You know, I think as a parent, your goal is to first teach your kids the basic skills, but then give them the confidence to go out on their own and find their own path. And I think that's the same thing we want to do as mentors. You know, we do need to teach our students. Some basic skills, but more important than the basic skills is the self confidence to succeed. And, um, you know, when I've said that um, about students needing love, that's actually a quote from um, Dennis Shama. Oh, right. That's right. So Dennis Shama was the mentor of uh, Stephen Hawking. Uh, Roger Penrose, um, Martin Rees, Martin uh, Martin Rees, the Baron of Ludlow, that's Um, (laughs) the astronomer uh, royal who
1: tells the Queen her horoscope every morning.
2: Exactly, (laughs) Um, James Binney, one of my mentors. A lot of people studied with uh, Dennis Shama. Um, Interestingly, uh, Dennis Shama never got a professorship at Cambridge because. At the time, there was a feeling there were too many Jews who had professorships already. Mm. So but he he had a tremendous effect on the field, um, some through his work, but primarily through his students. Mm. And uh, one of my uh, collaborators, Graciela Galmini, Graciela and I worked together when we were both at Harvard, had gone to Sisa in Trieste, Mm -hmm. where um, Shama was now a professor. And she asked him as a starting assistant professor, uh, what do students need? And it was Dennis who said this to Graciela, and Graciela told me this. And what Dennis said was, if you give students a sense of love, a sense of self-confidence, they'll find an interesting project. They'll have the confidence to find an interesting project. They'll have a confidence to do interesting work. Mm -hmm. Um, And you you don't wanna give people false feedback, they come in with poor quality work and you say, that's wonderful because they know that people know it. On the other hand, you do want to uh, encourage people to take those next steps Mm. Um, and, you know, uh, encourage people to realize, like, you know, if you don't succeed, try, try again. And then, if that fails, take a different approach. Mm.
1: That's so funny you mentioned that. That's exactly what uh, what John Mather said. He said, you know, it's okay to have heterodox views, maybe even crank views, uh, alternative views, but only so far. You know, at, at some point, you have to be able to falsify your hypothesis or whatever. Even if it is heterodox, and we're all for diversity of viewpoint, right? Um, but um, but that leads me into my next uh, set of questions, and that's related to the Baron that you just mentioned, Lord Martin Rees, who on my show um, we we talked about uh, we talked about the value of debate <clears throat> in science, and he said, uh, and I quote to me, most of debate is pointless. Because people don't really change their minds and, um, and it can actually create an illusion of, of uncertainty or perhaps give equal weight to a, a very, very much minority viewpoint not, you know, obviously in, in a bad, yeah. but, um, and you, and uh, you participated very uh, graciously on the great debate, you know, redux that we did on the hundredth anniversary of the great debate, uh, Shapley Curtis debate. <clears throat> and, uh, we had a great conversation. Uh, but you know, as, as fun as that was with Adam Reese and Sarah Seeger Wendy Friedman, Jan 11, and you and me, um, you know, we didn't, we didn't, Get that much out of it, and actually, I'll have a link because I made an ebook, which I'll send to you—an uh, illustrated ebook from that event, um, which is available for all my subscribers. So please subscribe to my mailing list, BrianKeating.com. You'll get a copy of that. David's words were were very uh, fascinating. But anyway, what about debate? Are there people you won't debate, so to speak? I mean, obviously, someone who does, has you know negative, you know, bad intentions. But are there viewpoints? I mean, would you debate somebody? I recently had someone on who uh, is a very well-known. Cambridge University-trained doctor of philosophy, uh, who's an intelligent design proponent. He's not a young Earth creationist. Would you? Are, will you talk to anybody as long as they have you know pure motives, or do you feel like Martin does? It's not worth it.
2: I think it depends on the person. Um, I think you're very rarely going to convince the other person in a debate, right? I mean, I you know you can get. Uh, I think about this with Facebook. Um, can you point out someone who has been convinced of of another political view by reading something on Facebook? I, I, I'm not familiar with this phenomenon. We're um, in politics, and, right? I mean, how many people say? Many no, that's what I mean. About... Politics. Yeah. Politics. That's right. Um, on the other hand, um, there are people who listen to these debates who come in with open mind. So it depends on the forum. Um, there's a balance where if it's a discussion of something like intelligent design is by engaging in this discussion, is this an opportunity to convey to an interested, but not scientifically literate audience, why we actually have a very good scientific, why evolution really represents by far the best model we have. So, you know. Um, and, uh, and, you know, sometimes, you know, I, I engaged in a debate once with this guy who wrote a book that the, the Big Bang never happened. Hmm. And, um, Is that Jeff Burbage here at UC San Diego? No, no, it was this, uh, um, you know, in fact, I remember when Jeff Burbage came to Princeton to give a colloquium. Mm. And I was an undergraduate. And Martin Schwarzschild, one of my heroes, mm-hmm. was sitting in the front row, as Martin often did, and asked a series of pointed questions. And Martin turned to me afterwards and said, the reasons I ask these questions is for you. <laughs> <laughs> that as a student, you should realize the weaknesses in these arguments. So for me, the reason to engage the debate if, uh, is if there's going to be students listening who will um, not understand the weaknesses of those arguments. Yeah. And I often feel, I say this, and,
1: and I did a video about this around the presidential debates, You know, I feel like it's almost you know we should look to the scientific way of debating. Again, the way that Shapley and Curtis debated, eventually you know Shapley came around. It took some evidence to to convince him, which is which is fine. But he was convinceable from the outset. In other words, if the evidence had existed, if the data were good enough, as Einstein did, Einstein debated as you know better than me um, the validity of the Big Bang model, and then he saw data, the evidence uh, convinced him. But if you're not in principle possibly falsifiable in your tenets or what you believe, whether it's political or whatever. I, I do agree that a lot of it is pointless, but you're right. I hadn't considered that notion of, of um, you know, the benefit of so the
2: student. Let me give you two examples of people who have been on your show. Okay. So, Adam Rees. Adam is trying to convince people that there really is strong evidence that local measurements, the Hubble constant, um, give a large value. Mm-hmm. Uh, in cons- Wendy Friedman uses another method <coughs> and argue- argues for a different value. Yeah. They both um, fundamentally are most interested in getting at the answer. Mm-hmm. And when later this year the James Webb Space Telescope launches, hopefully the launch goes well, deploys successful, we will have a telescope far more powerful than Hubble. And it will measure distances to uh the nearby uh galaxies and it will get those distances more accurately than hubble and um i think that data could easily convince wendy or me that adam is completely right the data improves and that just gets more and more solid on the other hand uh it could show that blending for Cepheids is more of a problem and more complicated in ways we thought and some subtle things were going on. And Adam will be convinced. Mm-hmm. So that's a scientific debate where people will respond to evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not convinced that your recent guest, Avi Loeb, um, is actually interested in what a Amehameha is, rather than wants to promote the idea that he's seen aliens. I think that the response to claims like this could be easily explained by a solid nitrogen, much like what we see on the surface of Pluto, um, is a much simpler and more plausible explanation. And, uh, you know, we're, uh, we're seeing discussions that are about selling books, not about trying to understand the way the universe works.
1: Well, I, I have to defend him a little bit, uh, just just to make it interesting for that. I thought you were going to bring up Roger Penrose uh, or Giant Narlikar, who was a guest uh, about a month ago, uh, who is still not convinced of the validity of the Big Bang model. Uh, but he's impossible to not love him. He's such a gentleman, and anyone you know who is uh, you know so close to Fred Hoyle, uh, there's got to be some good, good, uh, good. Natured fun to yeah. be had with that person, but let's talk about Avi. So I agree with you that I don't believe that Avi believes what he's claiming, but for a completely different reason, and that is, um, I said to him, Avi, uh, you, you know, if only you knew a billionaire, <laughs> you know, that could fund a, a research voyage to Oumuamua. Let's let's not talk about these objects coming in the future that you think will be discovered with the Beer Rubin uh, Observatory or maybe with JBWST or what have you. By the way, that's going to be based on just sheer number of ngram searches on the Into the Impossible podcast. That telescope is not going to have one second of downtime. Sarah Seeger was telling me how much she's looking forward to using it now. You know, we're, we're hearing all these different things. Avi wants to – So, uh, but getting back to Avi, I said – why, instead of sending a bunch of you know iPhone uh, four cameras to Proxima Centauri B, why don't you just get Yuri, your buddy uh, Milner, to uh, to sponsor? By the way, he sponsored your Breakthrough Prize, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. um, and yep. he's, he's a very very important figure, I think, in, in modern science. But anyway. Get him to send a, a cubesat to Oumuamua before it go. You know, it's still, it's not traveling nearly the speed of light that your cameras are going to have to get close to. And he said, No, 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 Brian, don't worry. There, if I'm right, there'll be plenty of Oumuamua-like objects coming, uh, and Vera Rubin will observe them, and all will be well. And I said, You know, look, if I had, uh, if if I believed that that this was true, I wouldn't stop at any. There's nothing I would stop at to validate my theory. And I said to him, you're, you're being accused of, of, you know, trying to get popular attention going on, you know, the Joe Rogan show and, and whatnot. I, I don't have anything against it, by the way, because uh, I do think science should be popularized. And I think the, it's natural that somebody talks about aliens and alien technology is going to be lumped together with, with the, with the kooks, right?
2: But, yeah, uh, but I think I, you're no, saying something. I different. think there's a standard of proof for important claims. Right. And You know, before you resort to to and make large public announcements about important revolutionary claims, the claim ought to be widely vetted. And you want, you know, and um, that doesn't mean, I mean, I think it's very appropriate to think about these things. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, He's
1: written like 80 papers about it. It's not, you know, that, oh, here's a book. Um, Obviously, the book... Got
2: him a lot of attention, but, you know, and I think that, you know, the you know, there's a. I'm not sure that the uh, ideas of other people have been treated with the respect they deserve by.
1: Yeah, and yeah. that's certainly true. There's a well-known incident where he was uh, very, very, um, uh, you know, he, he was acting very um, uncollegially. Dismissive of, a, yeah, dismissive of someone
2: who has devoted her career to doing. Yeah, uh, Jill Tarter, who is a guest. Jill,
1: yeah.
2: uh, who's, you know, uh, to go back to something we talked about uh, earlier, I have a lot of admiration for people like Jill who devote a lot of energy for doing really hard things.
1: Yeah. One of the greatest compliments I ever got uh was uh in addition to your encomium on my book, but Jill read it and not only did she read it um, the, the day before it was due, she was going to give a talk or press conference. And one of my friends, um, uh, at the SETI Institute had to pick her up to go give the talk and he arrived at her house in Berkeley and she was all disheveled and, and she didn't have her makeup on her hair or whatever looks, or, you know, looks whatever, like I do every day, but you know, she's, she cleans up very beautifully. Uh, and, uh, and he said, she said, I was up all night reading this darn book and it was my book. And uh, she gave it. She gave an encou. She's been a guest on the show as well. And she's the cl- she's you know like she's she's the the Chuck Yeager on the West Coast, shall we say, of astrophysics. It's the person you <laughs> want to emulate. Cool under fire, just a scientist, scientist at every level. But um, but yeah, so so these controversies come up, and Avi in his book is very dismissive of things like the multiverse, and this is why I pressed him on it. I said we might not be able to falsify the multiverse, right? Because it could be that there are multiverses, there are other universes, we don't have access to them, and we have a mutual you know uh, d- disdain for for kind of physics that can't be necessarily tested. But I said Avi. You could test Oumuamua's alien origin by visiting, like literally visiting it, unlike a, another universe, which we can't probably even in, in, in practice visit. So I want to ask you, though, about these kind of unfalsifiable things. I talked to John Preskill. Sorry to drop so many names. He's the Richard Feynman professor at Caltech, a little technical college up the road. You don't spend any time in California anymore. I, I really miss you coming out here. But um, but next next time you're here. Um, you know, that
2: I, I, I was hoping to get there. This thing called COVID happened. What? Covid, I haven't heard yeah, of. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that intelligent so, you know, design? Is that co- covariant well, intelligent design? Well, that's actually a very interesting question. <laughs> is what is the origin of Covid? Not something I'm expert on at all, but I think yeah. there is an interesting debate on yes. its origin.
1: Yes. So, uh, but getting back to uh, John Preskill, so I said because um, he uh, was friends with Stephen Hawking, famously, and 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 they had many bets, <clears throat> and one of the things that he was most interested in is inflation and and also how the early universe is evolving, indigenous quantum computing, which was a subject of our conversation. But I, uh, at one point, I said, you know, because he's talking about string theory, and uh, and your friend of mine, Kamran Vafa, another guest. When I ask you at the end of the show, I'm going to ask you what um, what information would you put on a billion year long lasting time capsule? And Qumran said the equations of string theory. And I said to I said to John, I said, what about what would Feynman say about that? Feynman is famous for saying. I don't care how beautiful your theory is. I don't care what uh, kind of equations they predict. Uh, unlike Dirac, if it doesn't agree with experiment, it's wrong. But David, what about things you can't experiment on? Do they count as wrong or right? Or, or uh, John just said try harder, which I found a little unsatisfying. What do you think about things you can't even in principle test uh, via experiment? Are they not even wrong as Pauli or I think Pauly would say?
2: Well – I think, so string theory is an interesting example. So uh, if we, in principle, um, you could imagine uh, we understood, which we do not yet, how string were so, selected, and we knew uh, a way of predicting uh, fundamental constants. We could predict the, const, uh, the constants of the standard model from string theory that would be a tremendous success as it's nowhere near my colleagues or colleagues working on this are nowhere near this yet. Not only that, they could predict not just those constants, but the properties of something like dark matter would drop out of the theory and then be confirmed by experiment. Hmm. I think we'd all look at that and say, wow, that <laughs> was a success. If that were to happen, And we then understood string theory at a level where we said um, it predicted the multiverse, um, which I don't, you know, uh, then I think we would be forced to take the idea of multiverses uh, more seriously as an interesting and untestable outcome of this theory that seems to be a good description of nature uh, that we've tested in other ways. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I could see a path where Um, I would take multiverses seriously. Mm -hmm. At this point, until we have, you know, our ability to understand them are limited by things we have no access to. What's the right prior for initial conditions for the universe? I don't think it's an interesting discussion. (laughs) I think, you know, when I look at um, areas of physics, a question I ask myself is is my investing my time or now that i'm uh president of a foundation that supports basic research um are our investing resources in this likely to advance the field in the next 20 30 years or not even likely have a chance of advancing the field um and um you know the i think string theory is Uh, to me is an interesting bet. I've been very impressed by the recent work that came out of techniques people learn by string theory, but doesn't actually rest itself on string theory, on understanding um, the information paradox with black holes. I think there's been a lot of progress on that in the last couple of years, and uh, that's a profound question um, that really has been, the ideas that have come out of people thinking about string theory has really helped advance that. We wouldn't have done that without that. So I think there are some real uh, advances coming from string theory. Um, on the other hand, um, I've seen most of the work I've seen on multiverses um, is, to me, not that interesting mm-hmm. and not that likely to lead to uh, insight. Mm-hmm. Of course, I could be wrong. Yeah. Right. That's, you know, we we place our bets. We bet, you know, and we place our bets most fundamentally with our time.
1: That's right. Although, yeah, lately I've been thinking about uh, in, in the context of kids, you know, you they say, as you said, you know, the most important resource is time. It's true. I mean, although we watch enough cat videos, at least around here, to put that to the test, but uh, my, my feeling is actually innocence is the most uh, uh, ir- irredeemable, a non-fungible form of resource because really once you lose your innocence, whatever that means, it could be, I've talked to soldiers after they came back from going to war and actually ending the lives of other people and they had to do it or they would have been, uh, their lives would have been ended um, and and you, know, you, you look at you know, what can you get back um, and I think with research, yeah, there are so many dollars. And, and when you think about your portfolio, how are you going to risk balance it? How are you going to hedge it? I love talking to Jim about the Simons Observatory, getting back to uh, where you're who you're going to be replacing. And it's good he's finally retiring. I, I hope he'll have enough to, to, to live off of in, in retirement. Uh, but uh But Jim always said, you know, if we detect inflationary-generated B modes with uh, primordial perturbations using the Simons Observatory, we'll be dancing in the streets and we'll win a Nobel Prize. However, if we don't, that might even be more interesting. It might, you know, cast – have theological or philosophical implications. Uh, The last kind of personal question or or sort of scientific question, semi-personal question before we close out uh, with the three questions I ask everybody – like, how much um, does what you do matter to you? In that, you obviously are very accomplished. You could do anything, and I think a lot of our colleagues and the students that you've you've turned into faculty all around the world—they could do anything. They could be CEOs. They could be, um, you know, hedge fund uh, traders, as as Jim might have them. Um, but how much of what you do do you feel matters? In uh, the ultimate questions, I know you're a very uh, philosophical person. Um, I know that you um, that you're very knowledgeable about about religion theology etc. what do you think is the is the is the value of a life in science like this and and does it give you meaning? Can knowledge in other words science means knowledge not wisdom but but has it brought a sense of wisdom to you or a sense of wonder what what metaphysical um, satisfaction do you get if any I, I'm not sure if you do from what you do as a as a as a, as a scientist
2: um I believe in the scientific enterprise. I think it, one of humanity's great accomplishments, and certainly one of the great accomplishments of the last few hundred years, has been our deepening understanding of the universe. And by that I don't just mean of cosmology, I mean everything from, you know, the biology and anthropology, the whole broad sweep of of science. We We understand more now than we did in the past. And we have um, done something that while some of the outcomes of science and increased knowledge has led to technologies that have made life worse, in many ways, life for humanity is better. A smaller fraction of the human population goes to bed hungry now than ever in our history, right? I think there are uh, more people are free uh, in various ways. There's a hell of a lot of inequality, but there's a lot more equality than there was in the Middle Ages, right? We've, the world is a better place. And I think some of that is the advance of science. Mm-hmm. And I feel fortunate to be able to contribute in a number of different ways to advancing science, some through my own work, perhaps in the long run, I think my greatest contributions will be through training students, mm-hmm. right? That there's a, I've had the good fortune to train, you know, probably above what are 100 people who have been my graduate students or postdoc or undergrad, uh, many of whom have done really exciting work. And the fact that I've helped train them and contribute to them, uh, To me means I'm helping to contribute to science. So so for me, uh, contributing to our understanding is one of the things that gives meaning to life. Mm. Very
1: good, David. Thank you very much for that. And now we're going to enter the Into the Impossible Thrilling Three. If you have a few more minutes, David, will you bear with us? Sure, I do. Okay, great. So, but to get David's answers, you're going to have to subscribe to uh, this channel, Dr. Brian Keating, on uh, on YouTube, and then you can also subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify, wherever you get podcasts bought and sold. Podcasts are free, but your time is, is valuable, and I appreciate every listener. And now we're going to ask David the uh, an- the questions that I ask all my guests today will be especially poignant because it is uh, the eve of his birthday. And he is turning 60. And that is a milestone. He's reaching a midlife. So uh, so to get David's answers, you're going to need to subscribe to my mailing list, which you can do at BrianKeating.com and sign up. And you'll get actually some t- tips and tricks on life from Jim Simons, who is uh, for now the holder of the office that David will then subsume in July, richly deserved. So Signing off, if you do not uh, subscribe, you'll miss out on these final three answers to David uh, to the questions I'm about to ask David. I hope you will uh, join us over there, and you can do so uh, in your inbox, in your email, wherever you get your email. Well... David Spurgle, um may you reach the biblical age, maybe exceed it, with the developments and breakthroughs that the Simons Foundation will undoubtedly
2: come to under your t- stewardship. I wish you uh, blessings of, of. We are f- one of the things we're funding is a program called the Plasticity of the Aging Brain. Oh, wow! Oh, that's phenomenal. Yeah. Oh. So, and one of the things to get back to something you asked at the very beginning that I. Th- think we're learning is that just having good blood flow to the brain helps. Hmm. So get out, get out and start, get out and start running in the morning (laughs) or get on that, get on that Peloton. That's right.
1: I gotta, I gotta, I gotta get the laundry off of it first. That's, that's always the biggest obstacle. Um, David, uh, we love you. Uh, We're, we're richer for knowing you. Uh, you're a uh, blessing in our lives as cosmologists, as as scientists, and just as students of the universe. I wish you great luck, a happy birthday, and I hope Thank that you. you'll come back again on the Into the Impossible podcast.
2: I look forward to it. and uh, I look forward to it. Uh when the world is traveling comfortably and uh, come out and uh, visit san diego see you out there i hope so and i hope to see
1: you in new york city and i, I miss my ancestral homeland david be always welcome, welcome. any
0: sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic hello i'm stuart volko producer of into the impossible if you enjoyed this episode with professor brian keating Please let us know by subscribing, commenting, sharing, and most importantly, rating and leaving reviews. It really helps keep our universe expanding. We appreciate hearing from you and read every review and comment. And we're always open to your suggestions for future episodes. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating, D.R. Brian Keating, and join our premieres every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time for live chats. Follow Brian on Twitter, Medium, and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. That's Dr. Brian Keating. For free access to exclusive content, please visit Professor Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Eric Viri, Director. Brian Keating, Co-Director. Pastor Coleman, Associate Director. Produced by Stuart Valco and Brian Keating. For more information on the Arthur C. Clarke Center, go to imagination.ucsd.edu.